ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Just imagine what our cities will sound like when the cars on our roads eventually go all electric. Okay, they won't be completely silent, but the constant drone of traffic, that'll be a thing of the past. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Moving away from the combustion engine, going electric, will make a huge difference. But if we simply replace like for like, well, that's not going to be anywhere near enough, according to Kimberly Nicholas from Lund University in Sweden. This point in the climate crisis, we have to do everything, everywhere, all at once. And the reason for that is we've waited so long to get serious about reducing emissions that we have so much work ahead of us. With cars, which are responsible for a large share of global greenhouse gases, and for example, are the largest source of greenhouse gases in countries like the US, we do need to electrify and make them fossil free. But that alone, unfortunately, will not be enough to meet climate goals. And cars also have health problems and equity problems that won't be solved even by making them fossil free. So it's really important to start at the source of the problem and first reduce cars as much as possible and then shift mobility to active and collective mobility. And finally, to make remaining cars that do really meet needs as clean as possible. And most cars are located in cities, they're used in cities, which is why you describe cities as leverage points in combating global warming, don't you? Well, cars are used very widely, although very unevenly. So they're a good example of how emissions from the climate crisis are concentrated among a relatively small group of people. It's actually really a sign of affluence, to, global affluence, to own a car. And in countries like Australia, the US, and some of Western Europe, since it's quite widespread, people might not think of it that way. But a car really is a luxury item. And what we need to do is much broader than just reduce emissions from cars or eliminate emissions from cars. It's planned cities and lives where people can have good lives with inherently low climate pollution and be able to focus on what really enriches their health and quality of life without needing a car. Cars, climate, congestion and matters of equity. That's our focus this time on Future Tense. And Europe is our first port of call because that's where Associate Professor Nicholas recently conducted a major study. So Europe has a mission to deliver 100 climate neutral cities by 2030. That is very soon. And one of the biggest challenges to achieving that goal is going to be actually to reduce the number of cars in addition to making remaining cars fossil free. Both of these things are necessary to meet that goal. So what we wanted to know is to inform city policies what has already been done and how well has it worked. We looked through nearly 800 studies and case studies the key thing we found that united the most effective interventions is that they combined carrots and sticks. So it's really essential to both make it easier and cheaper and more attractive to, first of all, reduce the need for mobility at all because you have what you need close to hand. Also to make it more attractive and easier to get around by walking, biking or taking public transit. And at the same time, to actually reduce cars to get people 
out of existing cars and onto other forms of, of transportation, you actually need to use some sticks. And politicians often are afraid to do this. But our study shows that's what really works to make it more expensive and difficult to drive cars. For example, by charging a congestion charge to enter the city in a car or by making some streets car free and opening them up to people rather than cars. Really importantly there is linking the carrots and sticks. So if you charge to drive a car into the city, it's really important that those revenues raised go towards improving public transit and making it more accessible. If you close streets to cars, it's really important that those streets become attractive and easy to get around by walking and biking, for example, so that people really experience the benefit of lower car dependence. When you look at the different governmental jurisdictions responsible for a city, did you make any findings on which level of government was had most influence on traffic issues within the city? What our study showed is that local government can and must lead in these initiatives to reduce cars and cities. And I think this is really hopeful because the climate crisis is big. It's easy to get overwhelmed. There's so much action that's needed on every level, including from national governments and big businesses who have a big responsibility. Our study shows that local governments and people in city councils and departments of transportation and city planners have a really critical role to play. And they have a huge lever for one of the major sources of emissions that they can use effectively and on the short term get implemented and, and see the benefits in the, right away. Which nicely brings us to this man. My name is uh, Philippe Watteu. I'm um, here at my office in Ghent. I'm a senior deputy mayor, deputy mayor for mobility, public space and urban planning. Now, Philip and his team provide us with a really good case study in what is possible, because back in 2017, they implemented a city-wide traffic circulation plan, a plan that's still going strong today. Ghent is a medieval city um, with 270,000 inhabitants and we were just a city like many other cities in Europe and, and all over the world with too much car traffic, unsafety for pedestrians and cyclists, poor air quality, too much noise and so, and so on and so on. And so at a certain moment we said we should do something about it. Quality of life should be better in Ghent. And we implemented the circulation plan uh, after two and a half years of preparation what we saw in 2014, 2015 was that in rush hour in the morning and in the evening, about 50% of the car traffic in the city was car traffic that had no destination in the city center, that needed to be there. So if we could get rid of the true traffic, the quality of life would be better in Ghent. And so we did. The circulation plan is very, very simple. In the city center, the big city center where about 120,000 people live, in the middle, we have a car-restricted zone, car-free zone. You can only enter it with a car if you have a permit. And then around that car-restricted zone, we have six zones. And for cyclists, for pedestrians, for taxis, for public transport, nothing changed with the circulation plan. But for car drivers, something did change because they can't drive anymore from one zone to another directly. If they want to go with a car from one zone to another, they have to use the ring road. So get out, take the ring road and get in, in the other zone. It's very easy. By doing that, we got rid of the true traffic. So that means space for pedestrians, space for public transport, space for cyclists and so on. That's, that's what we did. I also understand that you scrapped quite a considerable number of parking spaces 
in the city and also introduced a pedestrian-only area where not even bikes were allowed during certain times of the day. Is that correct? That's correct. What we try to do is to make space for other things than for cars. Like the famous Danish uh, urbanist Jan Gehl says, if you design a city for cars, the cars will come. If you design a city for people, people will come. So what we try to do is to make space for other things, for commercial activities, but also for greenery, parking spots for cyclists, and so on. So we need space. We take the space from the cars. And I've scrapped in the last uh, six years about 7,500 parking spots, and we replaced it with other things. And what we see is that people follow, because the moment you give space to other transport modes, they use it. And we see that, for example, car possession in Ghent is decreasing as a consequence of of, uh, our policy. We had in 2015, we had 1.2 cars per household. In 2021, it was 1.0 per household. Even though this plan is about reducing the number of vehicles in the city, you've been at pains to point out that it shouldn't be seen as an anti-car plan. No, it's it's not an anti-car plan because except for the car-restricted zone, a car driver can get everywhere. That's not the point. Many people need their car. You can get everywhere with a car, but what we don't want is to have true traffic. If people have a destination with a car, that's no problem. It's only if people use the city to get faster somewhere else, that's not good for the city. So it's all about space and quality of life. What's interesting and perhaps unique about Ghent's circulation plan is that its introduction wasn't staggered. It was put in place over the course of one weekend, just 48 hours. Friday evening, everything was like it was with many cars and so on. And the Monday morning, everything was changed. Because it's it's easier to do such thing on a fast manner, because if people have to adapt every weekend of every week to adapt to something else, it's more difficult. One time adaption to one change is easier than adaption to several changes. So we did it in one weekend, it was possible. It's a simple plan. Like I said, one car restricted area and then six zones around it. It's very easy to implement. If you don't want to have cars in some street, it's very easy. You have to have a sign at the beginning of the street and at the end of the street. That's not complicated. So it's possible to do it in one weekend. So it's a simple plan. It's a fast plan. It's also cheap because we spent, for everything of the plan, we spent about 5 million euro. Now, it's been a very successful measure from what I can gauge. But what sort of opposition did you face initially in introducing these measures? We presented the first sketch of the uh, circulation plan in October 2014. And then we had a preparation time of two and a half years. That time of two and a half years was very, very difficult, very hard. There were um, many debates, that's good, but they were very rough. There was uh, yelling, insulting, and even I have I've got death threats. I had uh, police surveillance for six weeks. So it was very hard. It was, it was difficult. But what I learned is that if there is opposition, that's good. It's fine. It's it's okay to oppose something. But opposition makes always lots of noise. And what you don't hear is a silent majority of people who are in favor and who trust what you are doing. So it was a very hard period. 
But after this implementation, it was clear that many people support the circulation plan. More people support it than oppose it. And in terms of public education, how important was it to get people not just aware of the proposal, but also to see the benefits, the possible benefits? Yeah, that's a very important one, because sometimes politics is too much declarations and visions and too less experiencing and experimenting. What is important is that people feel and experience how a city can change. And so what we did in the in the years before the circulation plan is experimenting on public domain. For example, our Living Streets project, that was a project where we gave the streets to the residents and they could design it like they wanted for two or three months, temporary. And there were two conditions. One condition was car-free. Second condition, if there are problems about that car-free condition, for some residents, you have to solve the problems together. So those two conditions. And what we saw is that in the living streets, people discovered that a street can be something different than just a road with cars and parked cars, that it also can be a space to meet the neighbors and to do other things. So the streets were much more pleasant for the people who lived there than before. And even those residents who were almost addicted to their car, they said, okay, it's temporary. It's only for two months or three months. I don't like it, but let's go with it. And after that experiment, those people who were very much focused on their car and a bit skeptical about the Living Streets project, they changed because they saw, oh, our street is much more pleasant than before. And now I can talk to my neighbors. We can do things together. And also those people feel and experience how a city can change if you choose for people and not for cars. So that's the approach taken by the city of Ghent in Belgium to try and minimise inner city congestion and reduce the other environmental problems associated with cars and traffic. Let's look at another case study now. The much larger city of London. London has one of the most famous congestion charging schemes in the world. And the municipal government has also introduced what's called an ultra-low emission zone. So how have both measures worked? David Metz is with the Centre for Transport Studies at University College London, and he was formerly the chief scientist for the UK Department of Transport. In London, congestion charging was introduced in the central zone, in the centre of the city, 20 years ago now. And I should say it's been quite successful in the sense the technology works It's publicly acceptable. It's enforced through a camera-based system checking number plates against those who have or haven't paid. And it generates useful revenues that are used to support the bus network. And what was found when the system was switched on was that the delays to traffic dropped quite substantially in the first year after the system was introduced. But over the next five years the delays gradually returned to what they had been. So the upshot was it didn't really have that much effect on congestion. And there are two reasons for this. One is that advantage was taken of the lower amount of traffic to convert 
some road space to cycle lanes and bus lanes and pedestrian space. But the other reason, in my view, is that some of the people that have previously been deterred from using that part of the road network at that time uh, because of the delays, once the delays were reduced, some of them came back onto the system because the delays have been reduced. So it's really quite hard to reduce the intensity of road traffic congestion in cities. So that, I think, is what we've seen in London So is it the case that if you are looking to reduce congestion within a city, you can't just rely on congestion charging, that that it's a good start, but it it won't deliver the goods further down the track, as you say? No, I think as a minimum, you need good alternatives. But my view is you can reduce the total amount of traffic congestion by reducing the amount of road space available for cars. But it's quite difficult to reduce the intensity of traffic congestion, particularly during the peak times, except if you had a very high charge indeed, and there you would get into the political difficulties of introducing such a charge and questions of equity would arise. For example, motorists on low income who need their car to get to work because there's no alternative. So I think one reason why congestion charging hasn't been adopted much more widely is its limited capacity to deal with a problem that it's intended to address. And yet, as you say, in London, it is seen as a success. Well, it's accepted, yes, partly because it does produce revenues that uh, are used to support the buses. So that's congestion charging in the UK capital. What about the other initiative I mentioned? The aim of the ultra-low emission zone was to improve air quality by deterring old vehicles, polluting vehicles, particularly diesels and older petrol vehicles. The initial ultra-low emission zone coincided with the central London charging zone and used the same technology. So you could go online to check whether your vehicle was liable to pay the charge. And if it was, you would have to pay a fixed daily charge if you were in the zone. Rather over a year ago, that was extended to a wider area of London, the inner boroughs, essentially. And the objective was not to change the amount of traffic It was to reduce air pollution, which had been above internationally acceptable limits. And that has been really quite successful in doing that. Recently, the Mayor of London announced his intention to expand the ultra-low emission zone to the whole of London. And that's resulted in quite a bit of pushback in the outer London boroughs. Partly it's political. The Mayor is from the Labour Party. The outer London boroughs tend to be conservative. So whereas initially this ultra-low emission zone policy received wide approval, now it's become a matter for political debate. I think political will has three elements we need to consider. First, we need politicians and we need to elect politicians who are willing to listen to the science and implement bold climate policies in line with the scale of the climate emergency. Second, we need citizens who are engaged and organized from the local to the national level and beyond. For example, one of the most effective climate actions you can take as a citizen would be to support these kind of measures in your neighborhood to make it easier to walk and bike to school, for example, to have 
housing near the things that you need, like schools and grocery stores. And those are really essential for politicians to hear from their constituents that that's something you care about and value. And third, I think something that's often misunderstood or not understood about the climate crisis is that there's a small group of people who benefit from the current system and are likely to be very vocal in resisting changes. In this case, there's a small group of people who are really frequent drivers and tend to cause the majority of emissions. And those people are probably not going to like measures that make it more expensive and difficult to drive. So we have to recognize there, we have to design policies, first of all, that are fair and equitable, that take into account access to public transportation, for example. One suggestion has been, for example, for workplace parking charges, that uh, at a hospital, that that perhaps be tied to income. So that it's a percentage of a doctor's income, which would be much higher than a nurse's income, so that you're not unfairly punishing those who rely on their car for meeting daily needs. That said, it's actually the majority of overdrivers don't fit that profile. It's not, you know, the nurse just struggling to get by and, and driving to work. In Sweden, we have really good data for this, and that shows that 90% of emissions from driving come from 25% of the population. And that group is predominantly male. They're evenly distributed between urban, suburban, and rural communities. So it's not the case that, in Sweden at least, that rural people are more car dependent. And they're driving primarily for leisure, more so than for work or school, for example. So that means there's a lot of measures that have the potential to be effective that we weren't able to study because they, we didn't find examples of them being implemented so far. For example, charging a per kilometer driven and making a sort of scaled fee for driving would more equitably reflect, basically make polluters pay, which I think is an important principle. Kimberly Nicholas. The effect of vested interests shouldn't be underestimated. New York City, for example, recently received federal approval to introduce a congestion pricing scheme for part of the island of Manhattan, an initiative aimed at reducing both traffic and pollution. It could be in place by 2024, but it's worth pointing out that it was first proposed way back in 2007, and it's been a political football ever since. I would say that in some cases, policymakers have the best interests of the community in mind, right? They really are concerned about folks who have to drive long distances and access this downtown city centers and, and may be hurt, harmed by, you know, a congestion tax. In other cases, I feel like politicians use equity as a uh, excuse to not take a political risk and, you know, not do something that is proven to be effective at reducing congestion and improving sustainable transportation options because they're concerned about political blowback. My name is Molly Cohen D'Agostino. I'm based at the Institute of Transportation Studies at the University of California, Davis. And my title is executive director of a new center called the Mobility Science Automation and Inclusion Center. The reality is when roadways are free and there's no cost to access them, there's this public perception that they really are free. And we know in reality that is absolutely false, that roadways take an enormous amount of public revenues to support and to maintain and to continue to support and maintain. And this is a challenge, an equitability issue, because it is very hard for people to get around right now. You know, transport inequality and inequities in the U.S. is a pervasive equity issue. So congestion pricing or zone-based pricing or cordon-based pricing it's just this amazing opportunity that has worked in many places to provide that ongoing 
opportunity for revenue for making the public transport system work for everyone and, and really improving outcomes. And, and I think the reality is that people who rely on public transport now will benefit the most when you have that ongoing revenue source to make buses come more frequently, to make trains come more frequently. So if we had that kind of revenue, I think we could really make a big difference. So is congestion pricing, is the name itself slightly incorrect or deceptive? Is, is it really? Is this really about raising revenue, as you say, as opposed to a primary focus on reducing congestion within the city or, or within an area? That's such a good question. So I've heard many folks opine on the term congestion pricing because it really is not a very attractive term. I mean, no one likes congestion and no one likes pricing. So why would they like congestion pricing? Some folks have used the term decongestion pricing or decongestion zones. A pioneering legislator in LA produced a, a policy that would have been called the go zone that would have made a go zone around a neighborhood in LA to, you know, essentially a congestion pricing. But it, within the go zone, they were going to encourage not just a fee, but also additional bike share and additional transit opportunities and additional car share opportunities so that you were focusing on the go part of it, not the zone part of it, or not the pricing element of it. That was one element that would could fund some of these other opportunities, but it was framed in a much more positive way. So I would love to see the term congestion pricing just deleted. In your research, you talk about process equity, practice equity, and outcome equity. Can I get you to take us through those and, and what they mean in relation to this idea? We borrowed this framing from the literature. Uh, there's a number of folks that talk about this need for different levels of equity. The word equity is thrown about pretty willy-nilly, and it means different things to different people. In the case of congestion pricing or decongestion zones, Process equity is about bringing the community to the table. That really means bringing people of color to the table, Black, Indigenous, and immigrant communities who have been historically marginalized by transportation planning. So it's about bringing voices to the table that aren't often heard in the planning process and hearing where they think the zone boundary should be, what the fees will mean for them, what types of discounts would make sense, and, and what their priorities are for community investments. That's process equity. And then practice equity is really about the planning and implementation. So this is the real meat of the thing. After you've gotten all that community input, what do you do? So maybe that's modeling who might be switching from a car to a bus or a car to a bike. Are they spending a lot more time traveling? Are they reducing their travel times with respect to other people, right? Are there disparities that emerge, right? Where some people reduce their travel times and some people have to increase their travel time. And who's paying the most? And how can you reduce those costs? A lot of times, this practice part of it is where the real work is done. Um, and that also means the implementation phase. Is it implemented successfully? Is it implemented in a way that the community embraces the system? Or is it met with a lot of resistance? We know that that means striking a balance between a system that works, right, that reduces traffic and moves people to more sustainable modes. But it also means creating a virtuous upward cycle where you reduce traffic and improve equity outcomes and increase revenues. and that in increases the availability of public transport, and then that increases equity and it reduces traffic more and increases revenues, and you just see this upward cycle. And we know that this has happened elsewhere. It happened in Singapore, it happened in London, in Stockholm. We really do see this massive positive effect of uh, decongestion zones. So the last one is outcome equity. And outcome equity means big picture impacts on equity. So, right, this is the where the reinvestment matters, right? Where was it reinvested? Where is that virtuous circle 
creating impact? Did you reduce inequitable outcomes for one neighborhood, but not another? How do we measure that in the short term and in the long term? Without a doubt, the planning community is unanimous that these kind of pricing systems are one of the only ways you can really change behavior. I mean, full stop. It's very difficult to make people change behavior, but pricing and tolls do make people change behavior. And whether people like it initially or not, most people don't. But the reality is most people come around, right? In Stockholm, there was an initial testing period in which people were really unsupportive of the idea. But then after an initial testing period, they loved it and they turned around, right? And then a majority of the community supported the, the idea of a congestion tax. So it, it can be an initially hard to agree to paying more. But then when you see that there's no traffic, <laughs> when you need to get somewhere, you're just pleased as punch. So it's just, you know, there are trade-offs in everything. And right now, everything costs more and people are really struggling. So the idea of paying more to drive seems difficult. But over time, it will not cost them more because they can save and recoup all this money that they're spending on driving excessively and driving in traffic. Cars, climate congestion and equity. You've been listening to Future Tense. The producer for this particular show was Kate Lawrence. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.